Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we'd love to have them be a part of our Vine Kids time right out these side doors. Likewise, if you have middle school age kiddos, uh, we have a great opportunity in the back there in our newly built out back area uh, for middle school age stuff. So 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, anything in that window, pretty liberal with the old age groups. So I've got a couple of questions that people have been asking me recently that I'm going to address real quick that have nothing to do with anything important. Um, the first one is, are you sick? Um, it depends on how you define that. Two weeks ago I had the plague, I think. Uh, I haven't been that sick in like 30 years. But I'm better, but i got this weird residual cough and my voice is funky. But still at 50%, I'm better than like two and a half men. So um, I'm doing good, so I'm strong. Uh, but my voice is kind of weird, I'm kind of coughy, but I feel great. Uh, plague is over, I conquered it, so we're in good shape. The second thing I get all the time now is what is going on with your hair? Um, so for those of you that have been coming for any period of time, I know it seems kind of, uh, yeah, all the attention should be on me, everybody look at me. Um, I have my same haircut for uh, 30 years. It's just what I do. I'm a creature of habit. I do not like, we can go to a restaurant with the exact same thing every time, even though something else sounds great because I don't want to be disappointed. So I will do that. Well, for 30 years, I've had the same haircut. But in October, I decided I was done with haircuts. I didn't really think it through all the way, honestly. I, uh, I was tired of sports clips. The ladies were killing me in there. Couldn't do anything right. And I decided I was done with those. And that's about as far as I got. And then I woke up in February and I thought, what am I doing? doing. And I don't know how to get a haircut now because I don't know what to do with it. It's been 30 years. So I'm just going to let it go. And uh, we're going to see what happens. Uh, Gundy and I may be hanging out in the mullet club. Not real sure. Super curly. Meredith last night looked at me. She went to Dallas to pick up our daughter today, but she looked at me. She was, what what are we doing here? I was like, I don't really know, honestly. Because if I don't put a bunch of stuff in it, it's like a troll doll that goes on the end of a pencil. My hair is like super thick and it sticks straight up like a volcano, kind of like this. True story. So uh, I don't know. That's a great question. Kind of like a midlife, sort of midlife crisis. I had a midlife a little while ago when I threw out all my socks and bought new ones and then almost got into tank tops. I'm glad I didn't do that. That's true. Ask Meredith. I made a choice. I was like, that's it. I'm either going all tank tops or new socks. She was really grateful with new socks. So um, that's about it. I didn't buy a Corvette or anything like that. Um, wasn't in our purview, but I uh, just said no to tank tops and I'm letting the hair go. So that's as deep as we go. Then I think we're going to survive. So anyway, that's what's happening with me. Um, glad to know you guys are, care about that stuff. But we are in the kind of waning ends of this study of first. Peter, okay, and we have been looking at him now, looking at this book now for 15 weeks, and really what we've been doing is exploring it through this sort of lens of suffering that Peter shines on this book. Now, the entire book is not about suffering. It's actually about a lot of things, but it has this sort of overarching lens of suffering, meaning from like chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4, Peter kind of writes with this idea and understanding that the people that are reading this book are dealing with some really hard things. And we've talked about those at length over the past 15 weeks. We've talked about the persecution and the poverty and the loneliness. We've talked about suffering under unjust um, relationships, unjust governments. Um, We've talked about harsh masters. We've talked about broken marriages. We've talked about living and, and suffering even when what you're doing is right and the world just seems to be collapsing against you. We talked about suffering just for being a believer. And Peter has woven all those things in there to say there is still hope and joy and purpose in every moment, even in those moments that feel so hard and complicated or difficult. And, and it's not a book about suffering, but it's a book about life. And the truth is suffering and struggle is a part of life. 
And making your decision or, or a surrender moment to follow Jesus does not actually make that much easier. In fact, following Jesus oftentimes makes life more complicated. Uh, it makes it more beautiful, but it makes it more complicated. It makes it harder at times, and it brings on persecution. You begin to live countercultural ways and ways the world doesn't approve of, and you end up locked into moral struggles with culture, and oftentimes that leads to a lot of pain and a lot of struggle. And so we, we've talked about those kind of at length, and, and Peter is wrapping up his letter. Remember, this letter is written to Jewish and Gentile believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, all over. They may be living in isolation or in small groups, but they are scattered, and he's writing this letter to all of them to encourage their hearts that they are not alone and they have been called to something great. We call it called to life. They have been called to this incredible, true, real thing, even in the midst of right where they are in the suffering or loneliness or struggle. <clears throat> and over these weeks, we've tried to identify ourselves in a lot of these things. Where, where am I in terms of how do I handle suffering? Where do I, when life is hard, how do I turn and, and fix my eyes to Jesus and all those kind of practical places? Well, last week, Peter went on a little bit of a turn, and he talked about elders, <coughs> excuse me, talked about elders and the idea of being an overseer and a shepherd, and he, and he reminded elders that their call was to submit and truly give themselves over to the ultimate and true shepherd, which is Jesus, the head of the church. And Brandon kind of worked through some of those pieces and talked to us about what it means to, to live in this sort of humble way, and he, we talked about eldership. And then he draws everybody back into his conversation. He says, now listen, all of you, suffering elders, whatever they are, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to give you some final thoughts. And that's what we're going to pick up today, and some final thoughts that Peter has as he's closing out this letter saying, I'm meaning these to be an incredible encouragement to your heart. Because I know you're living with a lot of questions, and I know you're living in a lot of uncertainty, and I know that in your heart there's a lot of anxiety. And so I want you to hear my words. And so for a lot of us, those things are true in our lives, that we live with a lot of uncertainty. Am I going to get married? What's that going to look like? Is, or is my marriage going to, going, to, going to be able to get better? Is our financial world going to get better? Am I going to get a different job? Is school ever going to end? Is this hurt that I have ever going to go away? Is, is this sort of fear that I have ever going to subside? Like we live in a lot of that uncertainty. We live in a lot of these places where we just have questions. And so Peter's going to speak in the middle of those, and he's going to give us some very specific instructions on what it means to be a follower of Christ in the middle of those things as he kind of wraps this letter up. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to pick up right where Brandon left off last week in verse 6. And we're going to look at four instructions that Peter gives as he closes out this letter that are meant not only as encouragements to our heart, but meant as places to put our feet, places to stand. So as I turn there, as you turn there, let me pray for us, and we'll go before the Lord this morning. God, we are eternally grateful for your goodness. We are eternally grateful that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. God, we are eternally grateful that while we were powerless and could do nothing, you rescued us in the name of Jesus. Lord, every single one of us this morning has some version of anxiety or fear or questioning or something that's just tapping our heart. We're not real sure what the future may bring or may hold. Lord, a lot of us have questions about our marriages or about our financial worlds or about our work world or just about life. And while you don't promise to give us answers, Lord, you promise never to leave us. And so this morning as we open the last part of Peter's letter, I pray that you would just speak encouragement to the hearts of these men and women and to myself, that you would remind us of your great promises and great presence, 
of the war that's being waged around our life in which you promised to prevail. The truth of the calling of a Christ follower to stand firm in you and what waits on the other side. So Lord, as we anchor ourselves to those things, I pray that you would speak and encourage our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart. We do this each week. We want to be praying that God will teach us, right? So pray that God would teach your heart this morning. Just a little whisper to him, God, teach my heart. Just ask the Lord to instruct your heart this morning. Take a moment, and we're going to just pray for someone beside you. We do this each week. We want to be a church that prays for other people. Not everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is about you. Even if you don't know them, you're here for the first time, just be a little bold and just kind of in your heart, just pray that God would teach them, move them, encourage them. Just pray for somebody else. Maybe it's your spouse, your kiddo, or your friend. Pray that God would move in their heart this morning. We turn our morning over to you. <clears throat> we ask you to be bigger than all that we know, to instruct our heart, to teach us, to empower us, and to encourage us. In the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6. Now we're coming right on the heels of all these verses about suffering. And then Peter takes this tiny little detour and he reminds the elders of their call. He says, Listen, if you're an elder and you're out there amongst the people, Remember who you are. You are an overseer. You are called to lead. But more importantly, you are called to submit to the true shepherd. In other words, lead by following the leader. Follow Christ, right? And so he reminds them of that. And then he draws everybody back in. He says, listen, I want you all to hear this, but God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Uh, that he may lift you up. This is what we're going to pick up. He's going to give four instructions right at the end of that section as he turns his attention to closing out his book. He's saying, all the stuff we've heard about suffering, <clears throat> after I've spoken to the elders and to the leaders, I want you to understand these things. These are the truths I want you to stick your feet into as I leave you, metaphorically and kind of literally with this letter. He says this. We're going to be in verse 6. Um, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And then God of all grace who called you to the eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you to make you strong firm, and steadfast. To him be the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. So you get this sort of last piece of instructions. He's going to give some final greetings and say, so-and-so says bye, and they say hello, and we're going to learn some names next week. But he gives his final meat of this teaching, right? The final big pieces where he's going to wrap all of this letter up into like these four really important instructions. Like if I could leave you with anything, right? And they're right there on the page. And so we're just going to kind of work through But the first thing he says is, listen, humble yourself. And he's talking to this entire group of believers from the elders and, the, and the, the Jewish believers all the way down to the Gentiles and those new believers that are scattered or reading this letter. He's saying, listen, humble yourselves. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due 
time. So this may be an interesting thing, right? Like if we really think about what people are wrestling with in First Peter, uh, poverty, pain, isolation, they're being, they're being held as slaves under unjust masters. They're living under unjust governments. They're in unhealthy, broken marriages, a lot of women with unbelieving husbands. They're living in oppressive relationships, unjust relationships where people around them are harsh and mean. They're living in persecution just for being a Christian. Those are the things that we've explored over the past six weeks, just a few of them. So here is Peter giving an instructions to these people saying, humble yourself. Well, it doesn't make much sense, right? Because when we think of humbling, that's not a group of people that needs humbling. Not in our mindset, right? We think about pride or, or humility. We start thinking about, hey, look at me, or things are great, or I've got all this. And we need to remember that we're, we're, we're smaller than that, or we need to be lower than that. But, but humility isn't always wrapped up in, hey, look at me, or I'm great. A lot of times, humility and pride are wrapped up in terms of position of the heart, Now, I've mentioned this a lot, and I won't talk about it for a long time, but one of the great tragedies of the Christian church, the modern Christian church, is that we have done away with the doctrine of the holiness of God. We've just moved beyond it because we don't like it. So the truth is we tend to exchange that doctrine of the holiness of God with this sort of friendship, buddy, partner Jesus, right, who's sort of always there and walks with us and looks the other way when we sin as long as we come back to church and we're about 30 and have kids. It's kind of what we want to feel about God, that he's disappointed but not outright angry about anything, that he's got these superpowers, the greatest of which is super love, right? And it's a picture we want to paint of who God is. But if you read scripture, truly, Old and New Testament, not just the Old Testament, Old and New Testament, you'll see a very sobering picture of the holiness of God. That God is majestic and mighty and holy. That he is full of power and wonder at the sound of his voice. Entire nations flee and people tremble. That when people hear God or encounter God, they fall down, hair goes white, sometimes die. Because God is that wholly different than humanity. And humanity steeped in its deep sin and God steeped in his beautiful holiness do not coexist. They cannot. In fact, Paul tells us that we are enemies of God because of all that we are in our sinful behavior and all of God's perfection and holiness. In other words, God is not just tickled when we do wrong. God is devastated by sinful humanity. And our sinful humanity sets us up for the ultimate wrath of God, which we talked about here a couple of weeks ago. No one likes to talk about it. The reality is it doesn't make it less true. God is holy, majestic, and mighty. And you are not. You're not even close, and neither am I. And because we're not, we like to do away with the doctrine of the holiness of God. So we want to deal with the reality of our sin and our desperate need. See, most of us want to believe in this American kind of Western culture that just like anything else, we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. When I fall, when I fail, I can work my way back up to a place where God will see me as worthy. I can perform for him. The truth is you cannot. There's nothing you can do to earn your way back from our sinful state to God's holy perfection. So God in his infinite, incredible love for humanity sent his son Jesus to bridge that gap, that he would take on the sin of the world, that he would become sin for us, so that in him if we believe in Jesus... We'll be redeemed and changed, all based on God's incredible holiness. Now, here's the thing. We talk about back to humility. Humility is often about position of the heart, not about action. So oftentimes we think humility is like, 
hey, I'm great, and uh, I need to be brought down a few notches. I need to be humbled. But really what humility is, it's a position of our heart. And I mean it like this. When you're struggling, hurting, and you're in pain, like a lot of the folks in the Peter is writing to, when your life is full of struggle or persecution or hurt, we get this why me perspective. We get this perspective that says, God, why is this happening to me? Why have not been that bad? Why are all these things continually going wrong? Why is this unfolding? Why are you doing this? God, why me? And when you poise that why me question on top of the holiness of God, what you're going to see is something really remarkable, which is you deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. I don't deserve one good thing. But I am desperate in my sin, and even in my suffering, I still think I'm owed something by God. And the truth is you're not. Because you're steeped in sin, you are owed nothing. But God in his infinite, incredible love, even when you're owed nothing and in your sinful state, loves you enough to step not only into humanity, but into your personal world to redeem you. Now, when you understand that, when you understand that you deserve God's due wrath, but God has given you full grace in Christ, your why me turns into thank you, Jesus. Because the truth is, it's no longer why am I suffering, it's God, thank you for not allowing me to be dead, to die, to struggle, that every breath in my lungs is a gift from you. Instead of saying, God, why is it another struggle for me, our questions, our questions get turned on their heels and they become, God, thank you for allowing me to wake today. And thank you for allowing me another day to walk with you. The why me changes to a thank you, Jesus. And so when, when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter says, humble yourselves, what he's not saying is, knock yourself down a few notches. He's saying, exchange your why me questions for thank you, Jesus. Because a position of humility, right, that says, why me, does not understand our proper position in relation to Christ. Doesn't understand it. So Peter says, humble yourself. In other words, recognize that anything that you've got is, that's good is from the Lord. And you deserve nothing. And the fact that he's allowed you to live in a place where we can freely even worship on a Sunday morning, most of us are inconvenienced by that. What a gift, right? What a gift to wake up in a place like this. Humble yourselves. Listen to what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore... <clears throat> Under God's mighty hand, he may lift you up in due time. So I love this image of God's protection. It's one of my favorites in all of Scripture, that we would, as we humble ourselves, as we recognize who we are in relation to who God is, sinful, broken, human, holy, majestic, mighty God, that we would humble ourselves. Therefore, when we do that, we rest under God's mighty hand. Now just think about the imagery for a minute. Is there, more, is there ever a more beautiful picture of protection than a God that is so big that all of your worries and anxieties and very life, all the things that you think are so insurmountable fit under the palm of his hand? Like when you think about the struggles that you're in and you think about how hard they are, how difficult they are, the, the struggles maybe your marriage has been for 20 years and there seems to be no good or ending in sight or the, the financial upside down you're in or the complete fear of your heart that all of those anxieties and all of the sum total of all of their things and all of you are fit under the palm of God's hand. You want to think about protection. When we, when we humble ourselves, God's hand of protection literally covers you. That under God's hand, 
right? He may raise you up or lift you up. Now, the imagery is this, that under God's perfect timing, he not only will remove his covering, but he will raise you. In other words, he will restore you, he will rescue, and he'll redeem. But there's a caveat there that's really hard to hear. What does he say? In due time. What that means is the moment that you reconcile your heart and fall on the ground and say, God, I don't deserve or I don't deserve you and you are so great and holy and majestic and I cry out to you does not mean in that exact moment God is going to remove everything that you're walking through. It does not mean that we cry out to him and God immediately says, I heard you and he removes every pain. It doesn't mean that he won't, but it doesn't mean that he will. Because it says in due time. In other words, there will be time in your life where you walk through pain and suffering. It's undeniable. It's part of life. Pain and suffering are part of our story. And because you ask God to remove it and doesn't in that moment, does not mean that God is not moving and active and at work. God is always at work. He is always moving. And he's always moving for his glory and using you as part of that redemptive story. We humble ourselves, we realize that, and our greatest goal is not to escape the covering of God's hand so that we can be better or fixed, but it's to remain there as long as we can. Because is there a safer place to be than under the hand of God? Even in suffering. Because that hand of protection will eventually be one that raises up and restores. So Peter says, listen, humble yourselves. Get rid of the why me, the poor me, the I'm this, I'm that, the pity party that you're in, and exchange it for a thank you, Jesus, that you rescued me when I should be dead. And I'm not just talking about spirits, I'm literally dead. That I have nothing good in my life without you. And under your great and mighty hand that you will lift me up in your due time. And I will not become impatient. I will love living under your hand. And when you are ready to restore and redeem, I will be there because I'm not crawling out from underneath your covering. Right? That's this proclamation of humility, to live under the hand of God. He goes on to say, second thing, second thing, be humble. He says, humble yourself. Second thing is be self-controlled. Well, actually, second one, sorry. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Second thing he says is cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So that Greek word cast is a really fascinating word. It actually means two things. It has a literal and a figurative meaning. So it has a literal meaning like to throw, and Luke 19 uses it when uh, the, Jesus is going to ride in from Jericho into Jerusalem. It says that the disciples took their cloaks and they cast them on the back of the donkey. So they removed their cloaks, they literally cast them on the back of the donkey, threw them on the back of that donkey, and Jesus rode into town. But here, obviously, it's got a figurative meaning where it says to cast all of your anxieties upon him. So it carries both this figurative and this literal understanding of what it means to throw to cast, to let go of. But there's a couple important things here. The first is you cannot cast your anxieties upon Jesus and still carry them or wear them at the same time. So if you think about that for a minute, so if we use the literal, the disciples could not cast a cloak upon the back of that donkey for Jesus to ride on and then put it on at the same time. That's like a psych, right? They can't do it. They literally have to let it go, let it fall on the donkey so that Jesus can use it as he rides into glory into Jerusalem. But there was no way they could cast that cloak on the donkey and wear it. In other words, if you're going to cast your fears and anxieties upon the Lord, you do not get to retain them also. Because you've never cast them. 
If you're still walking in fear and anxiety saying you've casted the Lord, then you've never really cast it over. Because to cast it over means you have to let go from your hand, figuratively, from your heart, from your mind, whatever that place is. To cast means to turn loose. Now, most of us give lip service to this, and we say we give our anxieties and our fears to the Lord, but yet we carry them around because they've never really truly left us. In other words, we say, God, I trust you, sort of. I trust you enough to say take this, but the truth is I don't know what to do with my life if I let go of it. It's become a safety for me. And that's a lot of our control issues with the Lord. A lot of our struggle, the biggest struggles in my life are control battles with the Lord, which is, of course, incredibly ironic, right? Because control doesn't exist. It's an illusion. But it's one I've become comfortable with. And so I often cast things on the Lord and then never let them go. You cannot cast your anxieties upon the Lord and retain them. So if you're still walking around with fear and anxiety, I can promise you this, you've yet to cast them from your heart to Jesus. So don't tell me I've done it. I gave it to the Lord. No, you didn't. Because if you did, you'd be removed from it. But he says this other key thing in there. He says, cast all of your anxieties upon the Lord. This is one I'm really good at. I love to give the Lord stuff that I've kind of already come to grips with. I love to hand that stuff over. But where I really struggle is handing over the things to the Lord that I'm petrified of. And I don't even know why. The truth is, if God knows everything and he's in total control, why am I struggling so much with giving God the things that are really plaguing my heart? Well, the truth is because we become so comfortable with those that we'd rather live in them than hand them to the Lord. Even sin. Sin this way is so protecting in our heart. We protect our sin because we've become comfortable with it and we're petrified of what it means to give it fully over. But we're called to cast, to let go of all of our anxieties to the Lord. Think about that idea of anxiety, right? Those things that make our heart tense, afraid, fearful, that divide our heart. We cast all of those on the Lord. We release and let go of all of them. But why do we do that? And I'm in love with the next part of that verse. It says, because he cares for you. So we're called to cast or throw or release all of our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. I love this because it answers most of our deep questions when it comes to struggles and hurts, and that is, God, where are you? When most of us deal with loss or hurt or pain or struggle or fear, our questions are like this. God, where were you? Why are you not here? Do you even care about me? Why do these things keep happening, right? Our why me questions. God, where are you? The answer to that question about why we're called to cast our anxieties upon the Lord is wrapped up in the idea because he cares for you. In other words, he did not create you to carry those things on your own. In fact, he didn't create you to care for carrying them at all. That Jesus created a relationship with you, desires this relationship with you, so that he could carry your anxiety. He cast it upon him because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, Matthew says in chapter 11. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we cast our cares upon the Lord, 
He takes the yoke and the burden of our anxiety and our fear. Why? Just because he doesn't want us struggling with it? No, because he loves you. Loves you. And the first thing that goes when we struggle, when we really wrestle, is the question of, God, do you really care about me? Like, why all these great things happen to everybody else? And why does my life just feel like it's a continual bombardment of struggle? Well, because we're looking at it from the wrong angle. Life is full of that. Read First Peter. Everybody struggles. No one gets out of it unscathed. But the advantage and the beautiful thing that you have as a believer is you have a God that not only doesn't treat you as your sins deserve, but has exchanged your why pity party me questions for thank you Jesus responses and then given you the invitation to take every burden that you've got and lay it on him completely. Why? Because he loves you. And I find this so deeply comforting to my heart. Because it's not that God just doesn't want me to struggle. God wants me to know that he loves me. It's not that God doesn't want you to walk through difficult things. God wants you to know that he loves you. And that suffering is not a sign of God not loving you. Right? That we find hope and joy and purpose even in the midst of suffering is evidence that God loves you. So he says, humble yourself. Cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The third thing, be self-controlled and alert. You're going to be the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, right? So the third thing we actually looked at in chapter 4, be self-controlled and alert. Chapter 4 talks about that as the end is near, we're self-controlled and alert and we pray so we don't fall into temptation. The idea is very similar. We're called to be self-controlled and alert as followers of Christ. And in order to do that, we have to change the direction of our eyes. Everything can't be so inwardly focused on me. I can't be constantly glaring at myself and be alert to what's happening around me. But I have to be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. Even in our Bible-reading, evangelical culture, we don't like to deal with the reality of sin, the devil, the evil one. We don't like to talk about it. The truth is it doesn't pack seats in our churches. But the reality is the scripture is very explicit and very truthful about the fact that there is an enemy, a very active enemy, that there is a war that is being waged spiritually over your life, and that that enemy is active, and that he prowls around like a roaring lion. And as John says, he wants to steal and kill and destroy. And as a believer, your heart, though protected forever, by the Lord, is still being waged war over to ruin your gospel effectiveness, to ruin the beauty of who God says you are, to poison your heart. He may not be able to take your salvation, but he can kill any hope that you have. And he can steal your ability to tell the world about the God that has redeemed and saved you. The reality is that we face a very active enemy and the battlegrounds, the front lines of that activity is almost always worry, anxiety, and fear. You want to know where the front lines of the war that are being waged on your heart between the enemy and the Lord are? They're in the battlegrounds of fear, anxiety, and worry. That's where most of ours are. They're not some, some literal kind of thing where we're out there doing this work. They're most likely in the recesses of our mind where we begin to believe lies. 
where Satan begins to implant those lies and he waits and he waits like a sneaky son of a gun until just when we start doing the God, why me, God, why me, and pops in with, you're not worth anything. That's why. Because you're not faithful. That's why. Because you're not good enough. That's why. Because you're a failure. Those are the lies of the enemy. And he's crafty. And he speaks directly into those things. You know why? Because they're partially true. You are those things. You are a liar. You are faithless. You are sinful and you are a failure. That is true. But they're all partial truths. Because in Christ, those things are not only redeemed, they are made beautiful. And your failure becomes victory, right? Your worst decision becomes the fertile ground on which God plants and moves grace. That you are not the sum of your worst decisions, but that God in his redemptive, remarkable story rewrites your heart with his imprint. And so while it's partially true, it's not the full truth. And we believe partial truths, we live in a lie. And the enemy knows that if he can get us to bank on the partial truths, then we'll begin to question not only who God is, but who we are and why any of this is even real. Because the enemy prowls around and he wants to do battle on those front lines of worry, anxiety, and fear. And he wants you to believe half-truths. And Jesus says, "Mm -mm. no, you are new and alive in Christ, in me. Right? So we're called to humble ourselves and we're called literally to cast all of our anxieties upon him. We're called to understand, to be self-controlled and alert because the enemy prowls around looking for someone to devour. Listen to the fourth thing. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. James 4 says this way, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we take active steps against the lies and against the prowling of the roaring lion, the enemy, the devil, the evil one that wants to wage war on your life? Well, we resist him. In other words, we don't believe the lies. We have to be active in our resistance by standing firm on the faith. What that means is that we stand firm on what we know to be true about who God is. You don't have to be a theologian to live here. But you know certain truths about who God is and who he says you are in Christ. And we stand firm on those. That when the lies of the enemy come, when he begins to tell you that you're worthless, that you're lonely, that you're out this, that you're that, that you're whatever it is. Half-truths and lies. We resist that. We take every thought. We make it obedient to Christ. We resist that and say, I'm not going to believe that because I'm going to stand on what I know to be true about who God is. And God tells me that I am beloved And he tells me that he cares for me. And so your lie that I'm worthless is not one that's going to make it in my heart. You don't have to know every theological doctrine to resist the devil. You don't have to know every nuanced explanation of the faith or of church history to be able to know that the Bible tells you that you are worth something in Jesus. And so when we go to resist the devil, we do it by standing firm on my faith that says, I know that that is a lie. Even though part of me wants to believe it, I know it's a lie. And so you do not get that power over me because God has already claimed victory. So we resist the devil. And James says, and we do that, he will flee. We resist the devil in the name of Jesus. He will flee from you. He wants no part of that. 
We stand firm in the faith. And then he adds this one little line. Stand firm in the faith, right? <clears throat> because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. So he says this. You resist the, you resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith. Why? Because you are not alone. Now we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about the idea that the, one of the overarching principles of the whole book of 1 Peter is the idea that you are not alone. And suffering, struggle, right, worry, anxiety, those are things that take place in our mind. And we've been so good at creating false images of ourselves that we very seldom ever share true worry. And so we don't know that there are people around us that are struggling with the same thing because we project false images of ourselves to everybody else. We do it in the church all the time. You can't even live in social media without doing this. Social media is the expression of a projection of false self. Because we find self-worth in what people say and respond to, and we project images that are not wholly true. They're not wholly lies. Well, sometimes they might be, but not typically. They're just the glossy ends. They're just the pieces that we like everyone to see. And even before social media, we did it, Right? We dress up, we look right, we fight in the car on the way here, we hold hands as we walk to the door. It's the images we produce. But what Peter reminds these believers is <clears throat> the things you're suffering in, everybody's suffering in them, brothers around the world, sisters around the world. You're not alone. Loneliness is a proving ground for the lies of the enemy. And because when we struggle, we don't want to talk about it, we tend to cultivate that ground. And when we do that, we live in isolation. Isolation leads to worry and anxiety. That's why the church is called to be the community in which Christians live and thrive, because they shoulder and burden each other's struggles. It's a place that you can go and say, listen, I don't understand. I'm struggling. I don't understand what's going on, but I know this. I'm doing battle, man. My life is not perfect. My marriage is not perfect. My family is not perfect. My world is not perfect. And I'm, I'm suffering. And then the people around you don't laugh and point a finger. You'll be surprised and most people will be like, you know what, we were, we were there or we are there or I feel you, man. I uh, sometimes wonder the same thing. When you begin to realize that you're not alone, there becomes a safety in following Christ. There becomes this strength and the ability that you're not out there just carving the way. Because I mean, imagine these believers scattered all over Asia Minor, maybe two of you in an entire town, waking up every day realizing today might be the day you die because you believe in Jesus. Or maybe you were a slave under a master that was harsh and brutal. Or maybe you're a woman stuck in an unbelieving marriage where your husband is unjust and harsh. All those things were what we read in First Peter. How do you wake up every day and live in that isolation? Well, the first thing you do is you recognize that you're not alone. There are other people that are walking through those struggles. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, you're not alone. Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith. And recognize that you're not doing this alone. And then he wraps all these little pieces up with this kind of, and I, this is probably an eight-week series that I should have started, but I wouldn't do it all in one day. He says this, And the God of grace, <clears throat> who called you in this eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So he says, listen, if I'm going to leave anything with you, here it is. The God of grace, right? This is a God of grace. 
Not a God of legalism, not a God of punishment, but a God of grace through Christ who called you into his eternal glory, meaning that God took the initiation with you. He took the initiative with humanity. God made the move. You didn't. God stepped into your world. You didn't work your way to him. He called you, right? God makes no accidents. He called you into his eternal glory. So into something that cannot fade or fail in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong. In other words, God called you, he has not forgotten you, and you will suffer. There's really no other way to put this. I can't sugarcoat it. Like, life is going to be hard for all of us. At times, there's going there's to be moments of incredible beauty and triumph, and there's going to be moments of great tragedy and hurt. After you've suffered, you will suffer, because suffering is part of the Christian story. It's actually part of the story of life. After you suffer whatever that looks like and however that is, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So here's what we look forward to. Suffering is not just a desire to get out of it, to be done with it, right? That's most of our end result. Like all we want as quick as we can is to be done with suffering. I talk about that a lot. When we suffer, we pray, God, remove this from me, take it from me, and when we don't, we get frustrated. We begin to throw things at God. But part of the following of Christ's story or movement that we have is that in our suffering, God is at work and we can find hope and joy and purpose even in those suffering moments. Meaning that God can use and will use your suffering for his glory. Which means that we shouldn't always be in a race to get out of it. As hard as that sounds and as difficult as it is, God is allowing you to walk through whatever you're walking through for his glory. And so the moment that you're drawing breath in it, don't wish it away. I'm not telling you you got to love it, and I'm not telling you it's not going to hurt, but what I am going to tell you is that there's purpose in those moments. Don't be so quick to dismiss everything. Instead, say, God, I, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I'm here and I'm, I want to be faithful. So whatever you're doing, just use me. And in God's due time, right, when he has done what he's done, he will restore and redeem and allow you to stand firm. Which is really what we all long for, right? Like, this is where my heart is. Like, I long to be at a place where God has restored me and made me strong, firm, and steadfast. If you gave me three words that describe my life, they would not be strong, firm, and steadfast, right? They would be weak and wobbly and kind of hidey. <laughs> but I long for those words that define me, strong, firm, and steadfast even in suffering? So what does that take and what does that mean? Well, we humble ourselves, we cast our anxieties upon him, right? Literally casting them upon him. We're, we're steadfast and strong, standing firm on the faith that we know. We resist the lies and the half-truths of the devil that wants to lie to us, steal our joy. And we know that other people are walking through those things. I'm not alone. I'm not going to believe the lie that I'm alone. This room is made up of people, I guarantee you, that are struggling on some level. Somebody in here is struggling the same thing that you are and has done for centuries. And in the middle of all that, a God that is so full of grace and so full of goodness in due time, right? After you have walked through whatever it is he's doing and allowing you to walk through, will raise you up. His hand, right? His, his hand of beautiful protection will raise you up 
It's that hand, the same hand of protection that will raise you up and restore and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So the suffering will lead to the restoration. Suffering is never without purpose. God is always at work. Whatever you're walking through, suffering is leading to something great. So don't wish it away as fast as you can, but instead ask God to show you where he is in the middle of it. Because suffering is often the path to glory. We celebrate that when we look at our communion table, right? I mean, suffering is the path to glory. Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, the very night that he would suffer more than any human has ever suffered, right? Took on the sin of humanity. The abandonment of all of his friends, the running, everybody that he knew. The sham of a trial, the mockery of the God that made all things. Then wearing the full weight of human sin. That suffering led to death, which led to glory. Suffering is often the road to God's incredible and beautiful glory. Well, on that very night, after Jesus had given thanks, he had broke bread, he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant, that as long as you take this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We take communion here on the first Sunday of every month, and we do it by means of intinction, which means we just come forward or in the back to one of the stations, you take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and you eat. It's a table that's open to all believers, all those that profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a denominational table, but it's also one that we don't take lightly. The Bible is very clear and specific that if we need to exam- we need to examine our hearts, having fully surrendered ourselves over to Christ, before we partake in this meal. So as our band prepares to lead us in worship, I'm going to ask our servers to come forward. Um, as you feel led and called and freed by God, come take uh, part in this meal with us. There will be a station here in the back. Um, and then remain standing, and we will close our time in worship together. But let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. <clears throat> God, I thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That in all of your incredible, majestic holiness, God, you made a way for sinful humanity through Jesus. That his road to suffering leads to glory. And that, Lord, because Jesus suffered in his earthly body and was raised from the dead, God, we might experience your goodness and glory. No matter what life brings, Lord, I believe and trust that we are under your beautiful hand of protection, that we can cast all of our anxieties upon you because you love us. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of all those struggles and fears and failures and anxieties, you are always at work for your glory. And that in due time, you will make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Lord, as we celebrate these truths, we see them played out in this meal, this communion meal together. Lord, let them be imprinted on our heart as we trust and believe in you, Jesus. Amen. As you feel called and ready, come take part of this meal, and then we'll close our time and worship together. If you do need gluten-free option, we have that available as well.